Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is Jorge Saavedra Utman. Jorge, this is going to be our first ever conversation in English, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe it is. So tell me if there are problems with my pronunciation or my syntax or anything like that. Well, I'll try to do my best. So my first question, and this is a pretty standard one that I ask people who are kind enough to join me in the pod, is what's going on for you at the moment? What are you thinking about? What's preoccupying you? What's happening? It might be something personal, political, professional, or a combination of those things. It is a lot of things, uh, Toby, because... Um, and actually, this might be connected to some kind of anthropological observation from the place where I'm, I'm thinking about it now, uh, which is the Southern Hemisphere at the end of the year. Mm. This might sound silly to the people listening to this podcast, but... Um, one of the things that strikes me in, in, in terms of, especially when I moved to the UK to study and to live there, uh, compared to when I was living here my, my entire life, um, is the fact that the year doesn't finish, I think, at least in Chile or maybe in South America. It collapses. <laughs> it collapses because everything ends. The financial year, the academic year, the, I, I, in a way, the emotional year. Uh, so all your projects, it's like, it's like you have to run to make everything a circle. And then you're desperate if you don't make it. You're not happy if you don't have a great Christmas time or New Year's Eve. So I think it's, it's, it's full of, uh, anxiety. Mm. And I, and, but I would say that it, 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 I connect that anxiety here full of things um like in my case marking writing waiting for um, research proposals waiting for grants things like that uh that are more pedestrian in a way but i think it kind of encapsulates the um i would say political cultural and communicational situation uh, at the moment um i live in a country where we have a young president uh and a new coalition Paul rich Paul rich <laughs> Who are at the, I think at the, at the middle of the, of their administration. And it's quite interesting because some, some of the things were, uh, you, you suppose they were going to be a big hit and a big success, like in the cultural realm. Uh, it has been, um, not good to say it politely. Um, and there are complaints from the people who supported him in terms of, um, not, not only not moving forward, but also not doing things better than even than the right-wing administration uh, that preceded him. Um, so they are in a, in a, in a, in a very interesting place, uh, not full of hope, but interesting in terms of something I've seen and something I see in, 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 I would say, in the long road of my academic interests, which is the difference between the word and the action the difference between your political manifesto and the way in which you put that in reality, in action. In the case of the uh, cultural realm, it's about how you, when you say you will democratize things, you will make more things more participant, you will be super strong from this new left in terms of grassroots activism in, in, in local towns of um, with the puntos de cultura or cultural points um, re-energizing communities, validating the cultural work, and it simply doesn't happen. Um, and I think it maybe there might be a, a gap here with the new left between what you say you want to do, but once you get to these positions of power, what you act can actually do, but not in terms of having structural um, boundaries or people like stopping you to do, but because you don't know that you don't have the know-how and you don't have the people actually doing it. Because perhaps the left in this case has been very good at saying things, writing stuff, but not doing things. One of the Maybe problems that, that uh, both social democrats and the further left have when they come into office is that they often don't have anybody who's been in government before. 
That is one thing. Exactly. That is one thing. But I guess considering they are there now, they get used to it or in the road, they learn how to do it. But they don't have people like in the streets, in the local towns doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a gap there that it's, uh, I, am, I think it's something that hopefully the, the left in terms of culture and communications will learn, which is um, how do things work in reality? Um, how do things work in the daily life of people? So here I'm, I'm connecting to, uh, the, I guess, the Latin American School of Communication, right? Who were writing at a moment when the left was in the slums, in the streets, with yeah. the people, working with them in an horizontal, well, ideally horizontal way. Um, but I don't see that now. I think there is a huge distance, distance between what we could call like the intellectual left wing bourgeoisie uh, and, and like the, the real cultural and, and communicational life of people. So I am, uh, I think I'm, I'm there in that region and doing, conducting my research on, I would say topics that are quite close to that. Um, I'm conducting a three years uh, research on media and communicative practices during the uh, 2019 social revolt in Chile. So I've been traveling around, interviewing people, having focus groups uh, in three, yeah, one cent south central region of Chile, the other one is central, but on the coast, and the other one is the main region uh, where the capital city, Santiago, is. And there I'm looking at some of the practices that are maybe not the most prominent or uh, evident when you see a social mobilization, but some things that are happening, especially two things that are happening, um, that happened at the time, that in my impression were are not only interesting, new, strange in a way, um, unique in, in, in another way, uh, but also these are actions that I think we can take some learnings from keep thinking media communications. Could you say a bit more about that without giving away the secrets of your research? Yeah, no, no, it's a, well, it's um. These are two things. I, hopefully, the more will come. Um, and I've been <laughs> presenting about these two things um, all this year. And now I think it's a time, especially considering that we are entering a summer here. So our holiday break. And I'm writing a lot. Uh, and I need to put all these presentations in the form of papers. Um, uh, two things. One of the things is um, when I was conducting these interviews, um, people in local towns told me, or in, in the hills of Valparaiso, they, they told me that when they were mobilizing in October 2019, one of the things they said was, we need to create our media. And this is kind of an obvious thing in, 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 in mobilization. We have seen it in the past, and it happens now. In 2011, people created social media, Facebook page. That's kind of a, the usual thing. The new thing here is that people said, we need to create media, but not social media. So we need to create things printed. We need to print bulletins, and we need to organize, and we need to distribute this hand by hand. So people said, okay, we need to do that. And what do we talk about? What do we cover? What are going to be the topics of our new media? And they usually said something about our history, something about ourselves, something about the neighborhood, something about the history of this place. Um, and that's striking because People refused to do that, on, like with, with an Instagram account, for instance. And they said, no, because people will not read this. That was one reason, uh, because they are so uh, overloaded with information that they will not do it. Mm -hmm. The other reason was because they had neighbors who were elders, and elders were not going to read that. Some other, or another reason was because young people will might just scroll through and not pay attention. So the printed thing was a device to spend time with this. Also, the creation of the bulletins was collective. 
inviting people, and they were questioning about their identity, valuing people, get creating community in, in summary, right? Creating summary through a device that is super old, but who, that a device that wasn't used, it created a printed bulletin for the neighborhood. Uh, and in this case, created by the by the neighbors. So they did that, um, and they did this because at the time there was curfew, so people were like, this was previous uh, coronavirus, so it was a previous lockdown in a way. But um, so there, people were living in in these neighborhoods; they couldn't go to the central city or to protest sometimes. But still, the local existence was reinvigorated in a way, and they were questioning, who are we? What do we want? What? How do we feel? Simple questions from communication perspectives that um, were encapsulated through the action in which the printed bulletin was a product, part of a process of a whole community media created from scratch in a way, created by the own initiative of people. And this thing uh, like came up a lot, um, and I was surprised by it. And I, so I'm, I'm writing about it. Um, That's wonderful. I mean, I know it's different because this is not about self-produced media, but I'm fascinated by the return to market prominence of compact discs, cassettes, and vinyl. Yeah. Uh, where people are buying music produced by others, but they don't want it in the apparently easily digestible, easily replicable, universally mobile form of either downloading or streaming. They want physical things. And if you look at book sales, things, you know, often the biggest sellers of printed of, of books in inverted commas are, as you know, recipe books, cookery books. People want the physical object. They really like it. Apart from anything else, yeah. they like, think it's fun when the food gets splashed on the pages, even though <laughs> that can be frustrating. So yeah. I think there's a, you know, there's an element here of a dissatisfaction with the virtual world and a recognition per the elders that you describe of those whom it excludes. Yeah. I was glad that my parents were not alive during COVID-19, both because of the way in which elderly people were essentially written off by many governments here in Spain, in Britain, for example. You can go and die. You don't matter. You are no longer productive. You are not actuarially significant. But also because quite apart from that grotesque form of gerontocratic or gerontological cleansing, as it were, or ending. If you didn't have access to digital forms of communication, you were horrendously isolated. And Mm -hmm. elderly people are often isolated unless they're in very tight family structures. So, you know, I think there's a real problem with the digital fixation. And so I'm surprised by what you tell me at one level, at another level, it fits in absolutely with emerging patterns of cultural consumption and a concern for inclusion. Yeah. And, of course, it also ties in, I don't know how strong this is in Chile, but in parts of Latin America that I know, there is an almost inordinate respect for the printed word, for books, for libraries, for book festivals, such that having an encyclopedia in the house, <laughs> in what can be quite a poor house, is very, can be very, very important. It's interesting what you well, there's so many things about what you're saying. Um, of course, there is, um, some people might call it a revival of the material, and I'm okay with that. But there are definitely there is an issue with the material things. This made me remember, um, remind me of a work uh, some students were doing. Well, on, on this is a second year a BA module in journalism, and they were researching. It's a it's a module about um, media and communications, um, qualitative research, and they were doing actually um, a work on the revival of vinyls in Chile, which is 
big. So he, they were asking people, why do you want still want vinyls? Why do you like vinyls? Well, if especially because this can go from uh, the, the the age range of this is, is pretty large. I mean, you can have like 15 years old buying it and 75 or 80. So uh, they were asking people from different ages, why do you buy this? And a lot of people said, well, the quality, the material thing to sit down and listen something um, to dedicate my time to music and also the material thing, mm-hmm. the, the, the lyrics printed to see the pictures there, to feel it, to touch it. Um, to touch it. And then the, the, the it also big... reminded me the the 1990s and my brother who was a heavy metal fan and he one of the things he loved besides the quality of the CDs um, was the art of the of the album right all the pictures and, and yeah, having that yeah. treasure um, so there's something the, there. here in Spain if you go to a big department store and these in a technology section you will find tiny portable record players that you could take on a picnic yeah. to the beach. And they're going to play 45s, singles. <laughs> and they're expensive. You know, they're luxury well, that's, items. That's another thing. It's, the bigger record players. It's kind of a some collection of, these, of them. Some of these they've clearly dug out of a warehouse somewhere, right, that were never mm. sold 40 years ago. And others are clearly newly made. Yeah, there is something in between that I don't know how to call it, but this material, like the, like, I mean, the bulletins, having it on, touching it, um, passing it, um, with the, with the, with the, uh, let's say, vinyl collection or book collection, which is, it's some kind of curation of the cultural materials you have at hand, and you want to keep working on it. Um, now the thing about Latin America, you say in, in terms of books and encyclopedias at houses, um, mm-hmm. we had in Chile, um, some months ago, our common friend Des Friedman, uh, and Des was, we took Des to, uh, a huge, the first day he arrived here, we took him to the a huge flea market and he was impressed by the amount, because of the amount of books he he saw in the streets people selling books mm-hmm. and then everywhere actually we went to Valparaiso and and it was interesting to see that in the eyes of a foreigner someone coming from a different part of the world impressive how many books you can uh, see in the streets people are selling these books they still matter um and and i think they relate they talk to a culture that it's absolutely different because of course it's not the same to read something or to have music, a music collection on your on your Spotify list, than having it in your uh, in your own house in a different way. Uh, so there is something about it. I was reminiscing the other day with someone about how at the high point of my teenage Marxism, I organized my record albums by corporation <laughs> rather <laughs> than randomly or by artist, because I thought what really matters is the corporation that produced or distributed this. I, I want to go back, if we could, to something you raised earlier, Jorge, which is the question of the distribution of culture. You talked about some plans that have gone awry. Maybe think of a couple of things, and I'd love to hear your comments on these. When André Malraux was the culture minister in France, in the 50s and 60s, they had the Maison de Culture, the culture mm-hmm. houses, which were set up across France with the model being no longer must Paris be the centre of culture. We will take it to the provinces, right? Go forward 15, 20 years, you get examples in Chile and in Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, the Taller Popular. Mm-hmm. With a reversal of this, you get something similar in, in Cuba. The idea is not culture comes from the capital to the peasantry, for example, mm-hmm. But that the peasantry, indigenous people, minorities have more resources to make and archive their own culture, right? And so the distribution becomes multi-point and not one way. There were all kinds of great demotic drives behind this. Uh, We all know what's happened to those revolutions in Cuba and in Nicaragua as they became bureaucratized and the objects of familial power. 
But uh, it does interest me that it's it's such an important thing to try to do and so complex in terms of setting up the nodes to make it happen. So I wondered if yes. you could comment on that. Um, yeah, I can. Um, the first thing to say there, if I follow you correctly, um, is that my problem with the uh, ongoing situation, it's, it's more depressing than that one. Because I think what you're saying is is this divide between, um, and I experienced this when I was a kid because I, I, I'm from a small town. So whenever the mayor of my city said, "We need to bring culture to the city," <laughs> so we need to we need to bring the Philharmonic to to you poor idiots, uh, uneducated peasants. That's of course that changed with time, right? And there was a value. Of a lot of, it, it was there was an effort of the social democratic or third way governments in Chile after Pinochet. I'm too generous calling them social democrats, but I don't have any other word. Um, and they did that. And uh, actually, the the Ministry of Culture it was not called like that at the time, but it was the Ministry of Culture in the late in the in the early 2000s. What they did was, of course, to move from let's take culture to the whole nation, which is was interesting because actually um, access to cultural consumption in Chile is poor and, of course, it's unequal, unequal. And it's, if you have in the in the posh or the, the wealthy uh, parts of Santiago, you have more access. And in other words, you don't. You don't have museums, you don't have galleries, you don't have uh, theaters or nothing, um, even less in more um, distant regions in the country. And that, but that started changing in a way, or not changing. It, it went side by side. You no, know? it wasn't parallel. And they created a program in the late. There was in two thousand eight, around those years. They created a very interesting program called um, "Creating Chile in My Neighborhood." And this program put two people in two hundred local. Uh, towns in specific areas one person came from the social sciences and the other one from the arts and they create uh they diagnosed the cultural reality of the place the social conditions etc and then with the neighbors they worked on programs for learning and let's say learning uh, practicing certain arts let's say um, um a workshop on guitar playing because people played guitar at the local church. So they were building that kind of uh, learning and presentation and activity and an activation of the local place uh, through culture, creating documentaries or short films. It was fantastic. It really worked well. Now, one of the problems of the program was that it lasted for two years. The idea of the program was that after two years, people were going to be prepared to keep going. It didn't work. One of the reasons is because there was state funding. And when you put 40,000, let's say $40,000 in, 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 in this kind of a, uh, local places uh, where people don't have that money, don't have even the 5% of that money to create their own stuff once the state has left, uh, it was impossible to keep it going. And of course, people have to work, so they don't have a lot of time to dedicate for that kind of action. Um, so the, the, what happened after the state left was that the, what they did couldn't continue. <clears throat> and what happened then was that the, the, a right-wing government came to power. Now, that idea is relevant, in my opinion. That plan is and that project could be taken, but the current government didn't decide, it said, no, we're not going to go through that way. We're going to use, we're going to walk another road, which is also interesting. The puntos de cultura, or the cultural points, which is this idea of supporting what is already working in the community. So they recognize, there is a, there is a sense of recognition for institutions that have been working at a grassroots level for decades without direct state sponsorship, something like that. 
But for some reason, that plan hasn't worked. I don't see anyone working on that plan. So the plan, which was the core of the cultural policy of Gabriel Boric's government, it's not around. You don't see it. Um, and actually, what everything... Well, there are questions from artists these days, actually in the mainstream media, saying that this is um, a government that in cultural terms is looking at their belly button. So they, they're on, it's not working. They have uh, working um, rights and union issues. They have several problems, but it's not working. And this plan, it's not working. And this is not a plan you can create in one or two days and to put it into action. So if if we are halfway through, it's not going to happen. So that's a big problem. But I think it's a problem of not connecting to the people. And I think this leads me to the second point of my ongoing research. Should I go there? Adelante, okay. por favor. Uh, <laughs> I, I put myself the carpet to walk through. Um, well, this, this is something I... I it doesn't come from my my imagination or my own creation. It's something I, I saw, and this is this was a more evident thing at, in in twenty nineteen, uh, starting in October. During those days, uh, uh, the main outbreak was uh, in um, October the eighteenth uh, in Santiago, and then it, it it spread all over the nation, like in one or two days, and in every single city, major city, but also small city, even in in, in the city where I was born uh, and where I grew up, that is a conservative town, small town. It happened there and it happened everywhere. People grabbed, went to the, like, let's say a local square or the main square or to a local school or to the streets, actually, really the street, to the street, with their chairs, with a table to have a conversation about what the hell is going on here. So these were like communal assemblies, maybe like a Habermasian dream. People were to the center of the cities or local towns or any street. They called their neighbors and said, we need to, to organize, we need to discuss about what the hell's going on here. What are what do we feel? How, what are our demands? What are the demands we have for the general situation, the national situation, but also the things that concern us all. So this was something spontaneous, really spontaneous, um, that kept going. It was not only one assembly, it was one and then another. People had the chance to talk. This might sound silly, but the chance to talk, to be heard. And, and as I said, people who never, ever participated in anything alike in the past were taking part of these instances. And I say that there are a few things that, um, at least for me, are relevant. One of the things is that people have the chance to to talk, to be heard, as I said. But also, people felt welcomed. People felt accepted. Um People felt also that there was something I heard a lot, and it's it's kind of depressive in a way, but it's the reality. People said, I didn't know my neighbor because I, I woke up early and I went to work and then I came back and I was secluded in my own department and in my own flat, didn't care about anything. I didn't feel I had to know them. But then they started knowing them, they started sharing these stories. Um, they kind of embraced this communal life, feeling that this urge to talk and to discuss. There were people also saying a, a beautiful thing, that they went to these assemblies to learn, to learn from each other, to learn, because there were people like with more knowledge about, let's say, politics, law, economics, because at the moment people were discussing issues like, um, why was water privatized in Chile? Why the constitution of Pinochet in 1980 is so strong? Why this the latest, uh, uh, like let's say, more recent governments couldn't change it? Uh, what does it mean that uh, this constitution has the the handprint of the Chicago Boys? So all these things, and people were learning. So this was a political learning set 
at a grassroots local initiative um, that was working in spaces where the state didn't have a say, uh, or if not even institutional, uh, inst like academic institutions have a say. So my, my, my point there is the power of the people, although it might sound like a cliche, you see it in real terms there. What was the consequence of all this? Well, in some cases, people kept working on it, kept uh, the assemblies alive. In some cases, they um, had a chance to create changes, real changes for, let's say, a, a few squares or things like that. But definitely, there, in most of the cases, the relation was good because there was respect to talk. Of course, in some of the cases, it didn't work like that because there were people talking violently and not allowing others to to talk or to or being like rude. And so people said, oh, okay, I'm not going to expose myself to this. But in most of the cases, it was uh, it, it was a feeling of, uh, of communal existence, embracing that, and also kind of a communal recognition, um, building the city in a different way, so this makes me question to what extent the state or public policies are reading that, are reading and observing that reality, a reality that happens in daily life, right? So how is how prepared is, let's say, cultural policies or media communications policies to embrace this actions in which people are doing what Jesus Martin Barbero mentioned, right, as a complaint with, against modernity, which is how uh, am I going to be or how am, am I going to feel part of history with capital H if history doesn't talk about me and that keeps happening. So is how to, to what extent is the state seeing these things that are happening to let's say, incorporate them, or at least to have, to be seduced by what, is by what is happening and try to change the way they relate to people. Um, I love might... part of your story when you said people came out with a table and a chair. Actually, I have the picture. I, I could say, I'm seeing it right now because I'm, I'm just looking at this PowerPoint. Um, I can't show it to you. Well, I can. If you, if you allow me, so you can tell what you're saying to the people listening to this. But I can tell you there are um they're sitting around table, like home table, and there is a stop sign because they're taking the street. There are people easily from 80 to 25 years old. They have um they have coffee, they have tea, they have sugar, and they have hot water. So it's like a dinner in Chile, like a normal dinner, but they're doing they're having this at the street. Um, and even if you see this, you can you can create like like in terms of the these ideas of uh let's say okay what do we, what can we learn from this? You can say okay we're going to let the Ministry of Culture easily could have this assemblies to decide the, the what they want to have in terms of cultural planning. They could have done this, and they could have put let's say okay. You don't have to bring your own coffee. We can bring the the your coffee, sugar, tea. You bring the cups. We do this together, and then we create the public policy for the future. But they don't do it. Don't I do I it. think I think the new and the old left, especially well the, the right. We're not going to talk about that. They're afraid of the people. This new left. I don't even when they pretend to be different. I think they're afraid of the people. I think you can share your screen with me. It says that you should be able to. There should be a button, com Compartir Pantaja. I will do it now, right Let's now. See if it'll work. It's. Oh, yes. The I one in the middle and the one they on the gathered, right. They've, they've gathered around a stop sign in one of the photos. Mm -hmm. There are maybe 10 people sitting around a table with chairs and a couple standing and listening and we'll talk. 13. Yeah. And then another group is in a park and they're sitting around chatting. And then, of course, you have the mass mobilization yeah. photograph as well. Wonderful. 
which is usually that, that mass mobilization is the one you see whenever you, I, I mean, if you Google social movement, yeah, yeah. this large gatherings will That's come what out. You get, but you don't get, funnily enough, yeah. Habermasian slash Eagletonian fantasy of the counterpublic sphere emerging with a few people sitting around a table and talking yeah. about. Actually, I'm writing see. about this. Because I'm I'm a I'm a bit late, but I am writing a book on uh, media communications and social movements. Uh, so I'm actually writing about all this stuff that I've been thinking about and, and kind of researching and reading for the last thirteen years. We've got about a quarter of an hour left. I wonder, or a little bit more. I wonder if we could go back and talk a little bit about your publications, particularly your books. And maybe starting with a book that is about a town that you spent many years in, Melipija. Yeah, my hometown. Your hometown, which you've already discussed without naming it. And <laughs> your first book, which is co-authored and is about culture there, but culture not in the sense of people visiting from Santiago to sing opera, mm -hmm. but is actually about theatres. The history yeah. theatre, theatrical well, Yeah, space. that's a book that's a book we published in 2012, and it's the um product it's a product of a research we were funded by the state uh to conduct that. So we had interviews and I had a I went to the National Library to read every single newspaper of my hometown from ninety some from eighteen eighteen ninety to nineteen ninety. Because my aim was to uh, find anything about these theaters. This was moved by two reasons, or maybe three. One of the reasons is because of uh, Cinema Paradiso by Giuseppe Tornatore, the film, <laughs> uh, and how uh, an impact of this place that I, I witnessed. Because I went to this huge cinemas when I was a kid. Um, and it was influenced by because there was in a, in the center of our city there was a, a, a building, a concrete building, not very nice, and we were told that this was a municipal theater. So we said, okay, okay this is a municipal theater. Why is closed? Why are there are all the things, all the shops using the the remnants of of the old building. Um, so we conducted at the time in in the two thousands we conducted a. Um, some protests and actually a mobilization to 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 reclaim that building. So there was an interest there, and and the third reason was because people said all the time, "This town has a lot of history. You should write it. <laughs> you write about it." And said, "Okay, uh, they might thought this this might be a good point. And, and if there's a lot of history, let's have a look." So there there was also a myth about what happened in this town and the theaters. With the time, I discovered that in my town there were a lot of myths because there is almost no publication and this is a reality in Chile. You can find a lot of history of cities like Valparaiso in, in, in cities that have a lot of universities, like in that particular case. But in places where you don't have academic centers, like the history of those places hasn't been written, mm. especially in the 80, like, well, especially ever, but in the 19th and 20th century. And I think that's connected to a very Latin American thing, which is not talk about things that might bother powerful people in the town. Okay, so we create, we we uh, conducted this research and we wrote a story about the social side of, of theaters. So what was the sociality of these places? How were the, um, who run them on under what a notion what kind of films or, or plays did they have there? Um, what And so then we connected to stuff like uh, cultural industry, of course, at the time, uh, the impact of Hollywood cinema, the impact of Mexican cinema, uh, why people like Mexican cinema, um, how did people went to the theater, who was allowed. And, and it was fascinating because we discovered things that like, uh, when they created the cinemas that was super new at the time, they had like a barrack. And in this barrack, people went to see this new experiment, this fascinating stuff that had, they had heard of, but never went to. And one of the first, one of the first things they did was to split the room between, let's say, a 
the Hague Society and the rest. So from minute zero, the cinemas were a place of exclusion, division, right. social distinction. Right. Um, so the book is about that. And also then we moved forwards to um, what happened in the 70s, the government of Allende in the past, uh, what kind of movies were censored, how, let's say, um, kind of a certain types of love expressions were banned, uh, what was the involvement of the Catholic Church in what could be seen or not. So all those elements that were fascinating. And actually this year, I came back to my hometown because of the, I mean, came back, I always come back, but I came back in terms of writing another book with another colleague about, um, in the context of the 15, uh, sorry, 50 years of the coup in 1973. And it's kind of connected because the motivation for that book was um, the silence of a town who, whenever you asked about what happened there, people would say nothing. He were, we were all friends. No one went to jail or maybe just one day or two. This thing like a torture, imprisonment, persecution happened in, in the capital city in big cities. No, not here. This is a, this is the countryside. Uh, and when you, we started scratching the, 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 this kind of a wallpaper, we discovered a brutal reality. So the book is, uh, in, it has 13 testimonies of people who went through, um, persecution, imprisonment, and torture. Uh, and so I'm, if I have to highlight something of this year, it's it's that the book. It's that because we did we did we did interviews and then the interviews we wrote this interviews as a first person story. We the, the interviewees agreed, and uh, we invited them to the launch. Of course, um, the presentation of the book, um, and it's uh, I think it made an impact in my little town. And just before we get onto that, your co-author with on the theatre book, it was Mario Eduardo Poblete. Yes. Who's your co-author on this latest book of testimonies? No. No, because Mario is uh, more like a sociologist at the time. He was interested in, in cultural stuff. And my new uh, co-author is a, is a young researcher. He's a, a school teacher of history. And he works he works at a grassroots level in public schools, like date in, in his daily life, in his daily work, he's involved with kids he's also I think he will end up in academia at some point but he's come he's coming from that um from that side and also from a family who had well a communist family on one side and he had relatives also persecuted and imprisoned and what's his name Diego Cordova Diego Cordova now Another book of yours I'd like you to discuss briefly, uh, or, you know, not so briefly, is available both in English and in Spanish. I think it came out first in English. Yes. And in Spanish, it's called Comunicación Comunes y Movimientos Sociales, Mediaciones de Base Contra la Política Neoliberal. And in English, the Media Commons and Social Movements, Grassroots Mediations Against neoliberal politics yes which came if you out... are listening to this podcast please get it you can download it from free for free in spanish uh, although you have to pay for it in english um what do you want to know about that too tell us what you were getting at what you were trying to do and i would love to do that perhaps what you find that found out especially what you found out that surprised you. This book is, well, obviously in comes from my doctoral research. And this research in broadly is on, similar to what I'm doing now, but it was on the media and communicative practices of social, um, the student movement of 2011, which was at the time the largest mobilization in Chile. And by the largest, I mean, it was it, it went from April, May to December 2011, and it was spread all over the country. Um, I was interested in, 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 in simple questions like, why are they doing? Why is it happening? Why did it happen at, at such a 
high scale. Uh, why were people doing and what were kind of a, how were they expressing, how were they, they were expressing their um, discomfort and rest in different spaces. So my, it was an exploration on that. And I discovered like they were protesting at four spaces or four realms. One was a more domestic. I think mobilization can happen at the domestic or uh, world space. You see that in occupations when it's very common that students in Chile occupy their schools, but also at home. Uh, so this was like the ground zero of the movement where you are conf when, where you have confidence because you are in a secluded space in the case of occupations at schools where you can talk and discuss and feel free to occupy and resignify the time and the space for, let's say, activism or democracy. Uh, to raise your concerns. The house was a very important space because of the, at that place you um, you could talk about social things with your family. Uh, and in a way, you had to win that space if you didn't convince, if, if you were not able to convince your family, your relatives, your father and mother, how on earth were you going to convince a whole society? or the reasons of the mobilization. Then it was streets and like what, what we see normally in terms of protest at the streets, uh, at the big squares, something we can see also in, in, in Egypt at the moment, in, in New York and London or Madrid. And then, of course, you have the media work um, and then you have the online space. So those were like the four for locations mm. as activism. My point in my in my kind of a theoretical take on this is that I I seriously I, what I'm doing is saying okay, this happened in a highly neoliberal country with a weak democracy where people don't have space to say to have a say. Then I explore the situation of an element I call voice. This voice, I borrow ideas from here and there, and I understand it as the capacity to uh, narrate your own life and make that narration part of the social construction. And what I say is that just as all the things have been privatized in Chile, let's say water or forests or natural resources that are understood as commons, or um, I, I say that voice is a political commons that has been expropriated under neoliberal conditions. And I trace that expropriation in terms of resource, in terms of places for doing that, places slash um, relationships that are impossible to conduct in those institutional spaces. But then I get to a deeper point that I connect to, let's say, um, Latin American research on, on, on the topic, which is the expropriation of the entitlement of having voice, of this, let's say, modern imprint and neoliberal imprint saying, you are not worthy. This is something that from colonial times we have seen. The Latin American subject is someone without the knowledge, without the capacity, without the entitlement to have a say. This is even deeper, let's say, if you belong to um, a particular type of uh, ethnicity, if you're women, if you're from a rural town. So you grow up in a world where you are told all the time in different ways that you're not worthy, that you shouldn't reclaim. Actually, it's interesting that you have done this connection with my hometown. I was talking to a feminist writer uh, a few weeks ago, she's a 70 years old woman, a rebellious woman, fantastic writer. And she is from a, a wealthy family that lived actually in my hometown. And she, would tell, she was telling me the story of uh, his father and how his father and other friends, millionaires, talked about peasants. And they said they have to live 50 more years to even have a word on this table. Uh, so you grow up with that. And I think this is this types of expropriation carve on that and make you feel that you're not worthy. So when people say, 
or when you read someone from, let's say, Europe or the USA, people should raise their voices. Yes, but you have to remember that you don't feel entitled to have voice. In a society, in a world that makes you feel that you're not worthy. So everything, all those elements connect. And that's why I think that when I was telling you that the house is very important or this, the wall spaces are important, it's because, it's because what I see there is some sort of spark of small fire growing up. And you need those spaces to make it big, uh, to make it to the, um, let's say, to, to bigger, to, to get it, to make it to a bigger scale. So my concern with that research was that, and my actually one of the conclusions is that for some time, this commons of voice was able to be to exist, but it's only and it's usually for a small time, uh, because once the mobilization mobilization ends up, that voice is not already it's not there, um, and I am um, and these observations that I'm that are coming up in my latest research about people going to the squares and having a say, or the bulletin printed and its relevance are connected to this idea of voice keeping up in a longer time. Of course, this happened at the mobilization, but one of the questions I do have, unresolved questions, is how this voice can be nurtured for more endure to, to endure permanent in a longer time. Um, so that's my, my one of my questions at the moment. And, and and there I am. So I think what you've shared with us is that in terms of how you go about things, you blend archival research, interviews, focus groups, and being there, spending time in places, getting to know people. Well, this, this is something I have to do more because I was until March last year, I was living in the UK. So, uh, that's a, that's an answer I can give you for in in a new interview in the future, because yes, my goal is to be more uh, observe in a closer way what's happening. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I not for let's say this is not a method that this I would say this is just a a perspective uh, knowledge. I rely a lot on the yeah on what I saw as mm. in terms of. I'm not an alien. I'm not researching on Sri Lanka, which I don't know anything about. No, no, no. You're from there. And in terms of theoretical and political commitments, it seems to me that what you're seeking, what you're supporting, and what you're in part discerning is an expansion of democracy so that we can actually see real popular democracy and not the sham that is presented to us so often by representative parliamentary democracy and by the bourgeois media, both of which in yeah. certain ways claim to be the voice, to use the term you favour, or a term you favour, of the people, whilst transparently much of the time not being so. Yeah, and I'm interested on, on that. Uh, I think without any pretension, I think this is connected to what people in the past in Latin America, well, everywhere, but uh, I'm kind of focused on Latin America did in terms of the relationship between communication and democracy. Uh, this is something um, that is, of course, wide, all-encompassing, not only because I, sometimes I see too much focus on the digital. Uh, and when I see like calls for funding or job application or well, any type of call itself on the digital and the future of democracy. Yeah, that's one thing, but it's, it's not everything. Um so my interest is it's more it's wider, in a way. Uh, and actually, at the moment, I'm uh, we're going we're about to start something quite interesting. Um, we, as as my school at Universidad Diego Portales, we applied, and I'm the leader of that of that um, project for a grant to um, conduct research on community radio. We're going to create a map, and uh, we're going to create a evaluation of. What's the reality of community radio in Chile? And then we are going to work with people on, based on that diagnostic, how to improve some things, but we're going to work with them. We're going to travel around. 
this is also connected to um, institutions in Mexico. So there will be something about that. And I think uh, at least at the end of that process or halfway through, we're going to have a, a good knowledge of that uh, kind of a mythical area in Latin America, which is community radio and how is it, how is it working? Well, you know, as, can... as you know, it's meant to be one of the key prongs of peacemaking in Colombia in the post-conflict era. Exactly. The, yeah, we're going to have a conversation with uh, people from all the other countries too. These this conversations are going to be online. So we have, we oh, among the speakers, we have people from Colombia too. Great, yeah. So I have one more question for you, and then I'd like to give you the opportunity to add anything you wish, Jorge, to what's been discussed. So my question is, what hope for a new constitution in Chile? None. The answer at the moment is none. Now, the thing is, um, we don't, we went through two attempts to have a new constitution. Uh, these two written pieces were quite opposite. We can call it, we can call one of them a left wing super progressive uh, draft, a uh, well, proposal actually. And the other one was a more conservative uh, and kind of a religious proposal. Um, in the past, Michel Bachelet had one proposal. Uh, it wasn't, and it, it, it didn't. Nothing happened because the her government finished, and the new government didn't want to move that forward. Um, so at the moment, we don't have any hope because you know people are tired of, of this discussion. Um, in the way it was discussed. Um, and also I have a comment there. I think, and I would love to write about it, because we were talking about people at the streets gathering and talking about their ongoing situation and the future of the Constitution. But in both cases, the logic of write, of writing a draft and writing a proposal was to elect representatives and they were writing it without any conversation, without any public presentation in terms of having a say of what was happening there. I mean, something happened because yes, I could I could go and talk and and, and have a word and they might take it or not. Um, but it wasn't created in a more grassroots way. I'm not saying that all of it should have been written like that. But there wasn't consultation in, in terms of the process. Um, and, and it was, everything happened at a very high pace. It was, everything was quick. So it didn't have, people didn't have time to digest this. Um, and I think when you're writing a constitution in a more democratic way, it has to consider people in a deeper way. And it has to give time to read, to discuss. Think about it. it can happen. It can't happen uh, at a at a quick pace. Um, so at the moment, I don't think any type of consultation will happen. Will happen now, um, and we're going to stay with the Pinochet Constitution that has been a bit changed, mended, uh, but that's the one we have. And I guess after thirty years, thirty three years, maybe. I guess that's going to stay until it's not recognizable. Well, or, or another social revolt will come up in 10 years saying, and people will say, we should have resolved this earlier. Who knows? Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything further you would like to add? No, has, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. My English is understandable. Um, it's really nice to talk about these things, and I think we could be speaking or talking a, a lot more. Um, yeah, so the only thing I, I, I think we should keep is, although it might sound silly, is the word hope. 
Mm. hope in terms of finding if sometimes we're blocked in terms of what we can, we can research but uh, there, the world is full of sometimes it's well this is not nice but it's full of situations in which our contribution can make an impact um, can be meaningful uh, and I think I love to stay there and I think that's the right place where we should be um, and, and, and here I bring my former colleague in Cambridge Monica Moreno Figueroa She said uh, her signature at the bottom of emails was something like uh, to create a world without oppression and to work in a world without oppression. Of course, it's difficult and it's a new topic, but it's, I think for me, there's no other reason to, to work on the things I'm doing. Profe Jorge, many, many thanks. Thanks to you, Toby.